to Freshly Forever, a podcast that gives you fascinating insights week after week. Here's your host, Vai Kumar. Hey folks, welcome to another episode on Freshly Forever. Today I have the pleasure of having here with me Dr. Roy Bannerock. Dr. Roy is a pediatrician here in the Atlanta area. He was both certified in pediatrics in 1997 and he lives here in Dunwoody with his wife and three children. In addition to his work as a pediatrician, Dr. Roy enjoys swimming, vegetable gardening, and writing. He has written two books for parents, Solving Health and Behavioral Problems from Birth to Preschool, A Parent's Guide, and A Guide to Getting the Best Health Care for Your Child. He also writes and serves as a pediatric expert on WebMD, and many other websites, and has done several courses in his Medical School for Everyone series with the great courses. A complete list of courses and publications of Dr. Roy can be found on his website, uh, pediatricphysicianspc.com, and he also has a blog, Pediatric Insider, which features most of Dr. Roy's essays on many parenting and health topics. Dr. Roy is on Twitter, and uh, he also serves as the chair of the Children's Care Network, an innovative partnership of over 1,000 pediatric providers in the Atlanta area, dedicated to providing high-quality, state-of-the-art pediatric care. It's my honor and privilege to welcome Dr. Roy to the show. Good afternoon, Vi. I'm happy to be here. Well, um, I think it's very important for uh, us to put out some information on COVID-19 protocols and vaccination and whatever the whole COVID-19 uh, thing involves. And a lot of people have so many questions, though we have been several months into the pandemic. And um, I just want to let the listeners know that this is an informational-only episode and people still have to consult their physician for specific case-to-case uh, medical advice. And uh, But thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And just as a reminder, let's start with what hygiene measures and preventive measures children should follow as far as the pandemic and which age group wears a mask. If we can start there, please. That's a great that's a great place to start. We know that COVID is mostly transmitted through respiratory droplets. Now that's kind of a it's <laughs> it started that's sort of a little bit of a disgusting concept to think about, but we might as well uh-huh. be blunt here that when we talk and when we breathe, and especially if you yell or scream or sing, you you create little tiny droplets of of they're mostly water, but there's a little bit of mucus there, and there's well, there's virus, there's uh, viable virus particles in that when you when you speak and when you sneeze and when you cough, and those are called respiratory droplets. And we know that most COVID transmission occurs through these little droplets. They're much too small to be seen by the naked eye. Uh-huh. And most of them will fly out of your mouth and out of your nose and then deposit themselves. They travel downwards because of gravity. They're drawn downwards towards the floor. So that's where this idea of a six-foot uh, transmission length comes from. If you're further than about six feet away from someone, it's unlikely that their respiratory droplets will fly far enough to infect you by about six feet out. And the best ways to prevent 
infection then are to remain distant from other people, try to stay at least six feet away, especially uh-huh. from strangers, especially if you're in an enclosed area. You know, if you're outside and there's lots of air circulating around, that can be protective. But especially in an enclosed area, try to remain at least six feet away from people. Wearing a mask helps, and it helps both the person who wears it and the other person. There's two people involved with transmission, of course. There's there's you wearing your mask, and then there's the other person you're speaking to who potentially is the COVID spreader in this example. So by wearing a mask, you're less likely to spread COVID to other people because the mask traps most of those little respiratory droplets. Now, no mask is 100% effective. So a few of those droplets are going to sneak out either Uh directly through the mask or from the little gap under your nose or around your mouth. So that's why it's important for you also, not just the person with COVID or spreading COVID to wear a mask, but for all of us to wear masks. You breathing in the air, that will help protect you. Prevents transmission, also prevents spread to you, to the person wearing the mask as well. Uh, most children wear masks great, honestly. They don't mind it at all, uh, mm-hmm. including during sports and during schools. Honestly, I hear so few complaints from the children about mask wearing. The current recommendation is for most children older than age two to wear a mask uh, in appropriate situations. Now, I think there's a little bit of a gray zone there. I think some kids in the two to three age range, some wear masks better than others. But certainly by school age, by five or six, Almost all children, unless they have developmental challenges or some other health problem, should be wearing a mask in places like school and in places where they can't keep that six-foot distance from everybody else. Okay, perfect. Um, I think that's uh, a great coverage on that question, and uh, thank you for that. And can you tell us what categories patients typically fall under and what each one means? I know there's index case, there's you know, other categories, so exposed and whatnot. So if you mm-hmm. can just throw light on that. <laughs> right. This is this is a, a sort of a categorization I came up with for, for uh, a website that I came up, COVID Pathway, uh, to try to help people understand what they should be doing. So uh, the first question to ask is what of the three categories are you? And everybody on the planet fits into one of three categories all the time. You're maybe, you're maybe an index case. That means you're somebody with COVID or somebody with suspected symptoms but hasn't been tested yet. So mm-hmm. you still count as an index case if you have suggestive symptoms and, and you haven't taken your test yet. Okay, that's an index case. Cats, maybe we'll call that category one index mm-hmm. case. Category two are people who've been exposed. People who've been exposed to an index case. And exposure counts if you're within six feet for more than 15 minutes. And that 15 minutes doesn't have to be in a row. It's just 15 minutes over a 24-hour span, actually. Uh Okay. And that's uh, regardless of whether you're wearing a mask, it still counts as an exposure. And then the third category is, is most of us, is everybody else. What should all the rest of us be doing? So there's a sort of an action plan for those of you who may be an index case, you have COVID or you have suspected COVID. There's a different plan for those of you who've been exposed. And a third plan for the rest of us. And if you start with that sort of categorization, which of those three kinds of people am I? I think it kind of falls into place logically and it, it all kind of makes sense. Uh-huh. And so as far as isolation, who amongst these categories would isolate and for how long? Isolation is the word that you use for someone who has covid Mm-hmm. or has suspected COVID. Those people should be isolated. That's the correct word. And the isolation should last typically for 10 days, 
maybe for longer if symptoms are severe or last longer than 10 days. But for most people, it's it's 10 days. Um, if you have no symptoms at all and you just had a COVID test because, say, you were exposed or for some other reason, you're, you're, uh, and if that's positive, you're also considered an index case because you had that positive test and your isolation would be for 10 days. Okay. Um, having said that, is it necessary to retest after the 10-day period? And as far as the isolation, again, is 10 days the barest minimum that one should keep away from others? I'm, I'm definitely glad you asked that question about testing because that's come up in our office. Um, there's there's a little bit of misinformation about that. And I have to say that some of the schools are, are, are suggesting retesting, which is never a good idea. Mm-hmm. If you test positive for COVID, you're positive. You should be in isolation for your minimum of 10 days. And even if for some reason you test negative the next day, it's still a 10-day isolation. And the reason that's so important is because the tests themselves aren't 100% accurate. And we know that retesting, retesting, uh, what was seen, for instance, among professional athletes um, who, who pursued a, a sort of a policy where they were testing every day, there are many instances where a professional athlete would test positive, then negative, then negative, then positive, then negative. And every day, if you test, you, you might get a different result. So once you've tested once and you're positive, that's a minimum of 10 days of isolation. If you have severe symptoms and that fever lasts longer than 10 days, or you have a severe cough that lasts longer than 10 days, then you should remain in isolation until your symptoms have resolved. Uh, but usually 10 days for most people is sufficient. Mm-hmm. So when you say symptoms uh, get resolved, that may sometimes even be longer than 14 days. Is that a possibility? Well, when in, in this context, when we talk about isolation, isolation should last for a minimum of 10 days or until your fever is completely gone, fever is gone, mm-hmm. and all of your other symptoms are improving, not necessarily gone, but improving. So for instance, many people after COVID have a lingering cough. It can go on for three weeks and go on for longer, but you don't remain in isolation. That loss of t- sense of a, a taste and smell can linger. That can last for, for weeks or unfortunately for months Again, symptoms like that do not keep you in isolation. It would re- really only be a continued fever or a, or a continued severe cough that would extend your isolation beyond 10 days. Okay, that's uh, a good clarification right there. Um, when is it that one starts to really get contagious before a diagnosis or before symptoms start to develop? The contagious period begins for most people about two days before your symptoms, about two days before symptoms. That's why this uh, idea of all of us wearing masks in crowds is so important. Many Mm -hmm. of the people who are spreading COVID don't know that they've got COVID. They're what is called pre-symptomatic. They're Mm -hmm. going to get symptoms in a day or two, but they don't know it yet. Some people are also completely asymptomatic, meaning they never develop symptoms. They're also capable of spreading COVID. So the COVID infectious period starts two days before symptoms. If there are no symptoms, you just did the test uh, because you were exposed, say, then your contagious period is considered to begin two days before your positive test. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is a direct contact in in the community setting, uh, an, an exposure is considered uh, more than 15 minutes within six feet of someone who is an index case, that is someone with proven or suspected but not yet tested COVID. Um, and 
it, that is considered an exposure regardless of mask wearing. And th- the reason for that, and th- that's a that's a matter of, of discussion, is that in uh, common usage, many people are using cloth masks that are not nearly 100% effective. Many people don't wear masks correctly. Many mm-hmm. people wear their masks underneath their nose. And all of us occasionally reach up and fumble with our masks. So um, it, it, it's just not, although masks certainly help, and I definitely encourage everyone to keep your masks on when you're in public and you can't stay six feet away from other people. Uh, whether or not you are wearing a mask, if you were close to someone, it still counts as an exposure if it turns out that they that they have COVID. As far as children, what symptoms would one see in a child who is very sick and what should they do? Well, the most sick children uh, with, with, with COVID um, – you know, maybe we should start with the more common ones. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let me start with the most common presentation, and then we'll work our way to the kids uh-huh. that you really need to worry about. Because in truth, most of the children we see in the office in Nationwide with COVID really do have fairly mild symptoms. Their symptoms can include a cough and fever, sometimes just ordinary cold symptoms, runny nose, sometimes red eyes or watery eyes as well. And sometimes children have uh, an illness dominated by gastrointestinal problems like, like diarrhea or vomiting or abdominal pain. In general, though, these symptoms are are, are really quite mild in most of the kids we've seen. However, there mm-hmm. are some kids who get quite quite a bit more severe disease. This is rare, but it but it does happen. They can either develop severe respiratory disease uh, with trouble with breathing, shortness of breath, chest pain, very severe cough, or there is a severe inflammatory condition that is occurring in children. Uh, as almost after the main infection. So they've had COVID, they seem to be recovering. And in a week or two afterwards, uh, they get quite a bit sicker. This is referred to as uh, MISC, multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children. And uh, the main symptoms uh-huh. here are the return of a very high and prolonged fever, more than three days of fever tends to be quite high. Often there are a lot of abdominal uh-huh. symptoms as well. And kids with MISC often have severe abdominal pain, uh, vomiting and other GI symptoms. Um, and, and they're very, very sick. Kids presenting with MISC mm-hmm. are they, they they look sick, they act sick, they're lethargic, they don't eat well, and uh, parents of kids are, are are taking them to the hospital appropriately. With those symptoms, uh, parents know something is very wrong, and uh, they're they're usually brought straight to mm-hmm. the emergency department. And that that is actually completely the correct thing to do in that circumstance. Okay, um, so what should uh, presumptive cases do, and what typically? Uh, is this category, uh, say, like, is it uh, just the characteristics that COVID, uh, you know, typically, uh, you know, like uh, manifests in a person or is it family member had it and so on? Or what What exactly is this categorized? So I... I think that there's a sort of a different ways that we, that we look at it, especially as, as a pediatrician. You've got one group of children that has very severe illness. They're, they're really sick. They're having trouble breathing, tremendous abdominal pain, prolonged fevers. They definitely need to be seen and they need to be seen in the emergency department. So there aren't a lot of these kids, but if that's describes what your child is going through, whether or not there's been a COVID exposure, you need to go to the emergency department. Okay. Then there's another group Mm -hmm. of kids that has, um, let's say very, very characteristic illness, not severe, but illness that's super mm-hmm. suggestive of COVID. So let's say, for instance, a teenager who's experienced a sudden loss of taste and smell. 
That's very suggestive of COVID. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's so suggestive of COVID that I don't think that child even needs to go in for a COVID test. To tell you the truth, it's going to be positive. They've got COVID and it's probably better to just, well, stay home and protect yourself and protect uh, other people. Um, let's say another, another very suggestive circumstance. Let's just say you've got a 10 year old and the, uh, let's say the mom already has COVID. The, there's a sibling who has COVID. They've been tested. They're positive with symptoms. And now the 10 year old mm-hmm. starts running a fever and develops a cough. In the same, they live in the same household. That 10 year old almost certainly has COVID. COVID for someone who's not immune is very, very contagious. A household contact is very likely to catch it, uh, especially children because children, you know, within their own home don't tend to keep their masks on. And I don't, I don't blame them, frankly. Um, that kind of a child who obviously has COVID again, doesn't really have to come to my office or, or go to a testing center to be tested. It's so obvious that they're going to be positive. Then there's sort of another group of kids that have suggestive symptoms. Maybe they had an exposure. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have COVID, but it, it's not really clear. Those are kids, maybe they have a fever and cough mm-hmm. and they're not really sick. There's no direct exposure. I think that's a group of kids uh, that really should be tested. Uh, they could go to see their pediatrician. It depends on different offices are handling this differently. So I'll say, you know, contact your own pediatrician for the way this should be done. And the reason to do the test is a public health reason. So they know what their parents should do, what their siblings should do, what their schoolmates should do, what the other kids on the soccer team should do. So you need to know if that's COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and testing, I think, is, is is a very, very good idea. Okay. And what is your um, take on uh, someone asking this question how do I differentiate between, say, a routine cold and cough versus what COVID uh, tends to bring? So how is it that one can kind of know, okay, this may be COVID or this is just like a common cold and cough? No, I think that's a very difficult question. And that's why testing can be so important. In many cases, Mm -hmm. the symptoms are very similar. Many of the kids we've seen with COVID uh, come to our office with the exact symptoms of of a common cold. They've got a cough, a little bit of fever. They feel a little run down, maybe a little bit of a headache, you know, and they're not terribly sick. And I don't think there's any way to tell just looking at them without a test what's causing Mm -hmm. their illness. Now, if two people in the home have already tested positive for COVID, that's very suggestive. Or if they have, a, a, you know, something like that loss of smell and taste, or let's say there's certain skin findings like so-called COVID toes. You know, there's, there are a few physical exam findings that are sometimes a, a good clue. But most of the time, the kids with COVID really do look very similar to kids with other viral infections, things like a common cold or, or, or influenza. And, and a test is the best way to know for sure. Okay. And so when you say testing, would that be rapid testing or would that be PCR? Which one is more reliable? Is there one that's better than the other? So the diagnostic testing for COVID is all based on nasal swabs. And sometimes the swab is nasopharyngeal. That is, that's that really deep swab that some people refer to as a brain biopsy. It's not really a brain <laughs> biopsy, but it, it might feel like it. But you have to swab a nose. And then what you do with the swab, there are two different kinds of tests that can be done. One is referred to as a PCR test that that is trying to identify nucleic acid, essentially genetic material from the COVID virus on that swab. Those tests tend to be very, very accurate, a little bit more expensive, 
And it's a little bit more difficult to find centers that can do them rapidly. Now, there are rapid PCR tests actually available, and some centers do have them. But most of the rapid tests that are done, most of the ones that have a 15 or 30-minute turnaround, are based on what's called antigen testing. Rather than testing for nucleic acids for genetic material, they test for proteins. And they're a little bit less accurate. In fact, in the middle of an outbreak when there's a lot of COVID in the community, many of the negative antigen tests are wrong. And in fact, mm-hmm. some of the centers are now doing an antigen test. If it's negative, they're sending off a backup PCR, which may take a couple more days. So it depends on how much COVID is going around in your community. But overall, PCR tests are, are, are more accurate. Both tests are very accurate if positive. That's worth saying. PCR or antigen tests, if it is positive, you really are positive and you really have COVID. It's the negatives that let us down sometimes, particularly the negative antigen tests. Maybe not so reliable all the time. Okay. And what about the new variants that have cropped up? And are we still seeing this multi-system inflammatory condition? Or was it something that seems to have... uh, you know, improved over time? Well, And how sick do the kids get now? Well, MISC is certainly still with us. Uh, Hopefully it's being identified and treated a little bit earlier so the kids aren't getting Uh quite as sick now that uh, we know uh, what to look for. Uh, so I think that's a positive development. Uh, but as you as you mentioned, a, a somewhat less positive development is the emergence of new strains of COVID. And it was only a matter of time for this to happen because viruses evolve and change. Uh, the one that's in the news the most right now uh, originally was identified in the UK, uh, the so-called B117 variant that seems to be mm-hmm. much more transmissible, probably between 30 and 50% more transmissible. That is, if you're with someone with a B117, you're between 30 and 50% even more likely to catch COVID from them. Fortunately, this variant is not more virulent. It's not more likely to cause death or complications. And Uh just like with the ordinary COVID, children seem less susceptible. That is, children are less susceptible to regular COVID and they're less susceptible to this B117. But um, it it is frightening and I think it's going to complicate efforts uh, just as the vaccine is ramping up and just as we're all hoping that this, uh, you know, that the pandemic will uh, will start to recede a bit, we're going to have to deal with this new variant um, that's that's almost certain to spread throughout the United States in the coming months. Okay, um, that's a good note of caution there uh, for everyone to still follow all the hygiene protocols big time. Um, what about uh, people of color? Is this like any different? Are you seeing that? It behaves differently with uh, different people, especially the multi-system inflammatory condition. In general, COVID has been very, very hard, specifically on the African-American population. Uh, Black Americans are more likely to catch COVID and dramatically more likely to develop complications and more likely to die of COVID. And uh, that health discrepancy is actually observed in many other health conditions and has been a problem well, for decades, and I think it's a bigger problem than COVID, but COVID has kind of bubbled it up uh, to the top. Um, un- unfortunately, that health disparity is, is, co- is costing a lot of lives. And it's, it's not just lack of health access, although that's part of the problem. The MISC condition has been observed in every ethnic group. It's, it's being seen in, in uh, Caucasians and African Americans and Hispanic kids. It does not seem to have a particular uh, genetic or, or, or um, 
uh, a preponderance towards one ethnic group. It can be seen in, in any child, actually. Okay. Um, what about effectiveness of testing on these new variants? Has any data come up on that? The FDA released a warning about two specific uh, testing kits that may be less sensitive. That is, they may have falsely negative results on people uh, who have the new variant. However, it is likely that most of the test kits being used in the United States will be of, of, of similar uh, accuracy. It's, it's hard to know for sure, though, because this new variant isn't, hasn't spread yet widely in the United States, but it's something to be aware of. I, I would say because of limitations of the antigen test and, and the PCR test too, frankly, if you have or your child has very suggestive COVID symptoms, especially with a known exposure and the timing adds up. The usual incubation period for COVID is between five and six days, by the way. Um, even a negative test, they still have COVID. I mean, at this point, COVID is so common that you're going to see negative tests. And uh, it's important to keep in mind that a negative COVID test really isn't a magic get out of jail free card. <laughs> if you have very suggestive symptoms, uh, you should consider yourself COVID positive, even with a negative test. Okay. And where from you think they are getting mostly infected children and teenagers based on all of those case control studies that have come out? Where do you think it's more likely that they catch it? We know that most children who are catching COVID are catching it either within their own household mm -hmm. or from small social gatherings. Uh, that includes birthday parties and, and weddings and, and, and things like that. There is actually comparatively little transmission occurring in the schools. And there's very, very good studies. Actually, these studies have been done in several countries. Uh, the most recent one uh, from the U.S. Was, was in North Carolina, tracing uh, children with COVID to figure out exactly where they got it. And uh, th there's very, very good evidence that the schools themselves are, are safe for the kids, at least. Now, the, now the, maybe not so much for the teachers, unfortunately, but that's a separate question. But uh, the kids are largely catching COVID from, from social gatherings, from getting together with their friends and with adults after school and, and in the evenings. Okay. So again, there again, there's emphasis that people should still follow protocols and and just uh, be patient out there as far as controlling the spread. And so on to vaccines and protection, um, the much sought after topic, if you will, these days. Um, have you got vaccinated yet? <laughs> I'm happy to say I've received two doses of the Pfizer product. Uh, so the last one was about a week ago. So within just a few more days, I will be uh, fully immune. That is a 95% reduced risk of catching trans of, of catching COVID and of actually about a 99 plus percent chance uh, reduced risk of severe COVID, actually. And uh, these vaccines are, are phenomenally effective at preventing all COVID in the 95% range, but even more effective. And that needs to be in the headlines. Super crazy effective at preventing COVID severe COVID. In fact, in both of the licensing studies for the Pfizer and the Moderna product, adding all of those people together, so that's uh, something like 80,000 people, there was actually only one person who received a vaccine who developed severe COVID among all of those people in, in all of the studies, which is, which is really impressive and a great testament to the, to the ability of this COVID vaccine to change the trajectory of this, uh, of this pandemic. 
Fantastic. And is there any message as far as um, effectiveness or data on the other global vaccines that have come up, uh, Dr. Roy? There, there are several. There are some being studied in the United States, uh, the AstraZeneca product, and there's a Johnson Johnson product. There's products from, from China and from Russia. But uh, I am not familiar with the data. To my knowledge, that data has not been published, at least not in, in the literature that I, that I can, uh, that I've been able to read. So, um, we'll have to see about those other products. I know that AstraZeneca, uh, is, is, is nearing uh, I've heard they're nearing completion of their study, so perhaps their data will be published soon, and uh, hopefully that will look just as good and will give us another alternative and allow us a wider distribution of the vaccine product. Okay, thanks for the clarity on that. I appreciate that. And how is it that uh, you have felt post-vaccination? Was there any pain, anything, any such, uh, any difficulty at all when you got vaccinated, just so people can feel comfortable about possibly how it feels? Sure. What to expect? I mean, I'm only one person, right? Uh, after the first dose, I felt absolutely fine. I felt nothing, no arm pain, no anything. Uh-huh. And I uh, went in for my second vaccine thing. I'm just going to get this done. And that day I felt fine. But I will tell you that the day after my second dose uh, for several hours, I, I didn't feel good at all. I had sort of swimmy headedness and headaches and I felt achy and I, I had to go home and I took a nap. And then I woke up and I felt fine since. So I, I did feel poorly, let's say for three or four hours that afternoon, the day after the second dose, uh, but but I've but been absolutely fine since. So very short-lived symptoms, somewhat uncomfortable for a few hours. But you know, the, the point of the vaccine is to ramp up your immune system, to make your immune system recognize these little spike proteins mm-hmm. so they can fight it off. And, and when your immune system is activated, you know, you, you might feel it. it, might get a fever, it might feel achy, you know, that, that feeling you have when you're fighting something off. So I consider those symptoms a, a sign that my immune system was churning and working and uh, that I'm now well protected, or at least in a few more days, right? I'll be, I'll be well protected from, from the COVID virus. Yep. Excellent. And so let's start with immunity from natural infection. Uh, I know we have started talking about vaccines, but how long is it that one can uh, feel that they, are, they have some level of immunity when they have like the natural infection? Right now, the current guidelines from the CDC suggest that natural immunity lasts three months. Mm-hmm. That is, if you're re-exposed to COVID, you have COVID, let's say you have the COVID disease, let's say for the sake of discussion, January 1st, you, you have COVID, then you recover. For the next three months, you're very, very unlikely to catch it again. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you're exposed to COVID, uh, within those three months in February or, or in March, say, uh, you're not supposed to go back in quarantine because it's so unlikely that you're going to catch it again. Now, it's probably true that most people with COVID have a longer lasting immunity than three months. Uh, there's some data that shows perhaps even as much as eight months, but there's a lot of variability there. Uh, some people perhaps longer, some people not as long. So mm-hmm. the CDC has settled uh, sort of as a as an average or as a number that you can rely on uh, a good rule of thumb, let's say three months let's say. As far as the the vaccine immunity, Mm -hmm. I will have to tell you for now, we're we're not sure to tell you the truth. The licensing studies ran out for approximately four months and immunity for those four months was very, very robust. When you look at the, the graphs of the rates of disease, they did not begin to even vaguely decrease as it approached four months. 
there's lab data that is data, you know, created in test tubes and petri dishes that shows that uh, the immunity should last quite a bit longer. Uh, the Moderna company uh, released some data um, that seems to show immunity should last at least a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think the proof will be in the pudding. I, I, I have to say that, mm-hmm. as, a, as a, you know, if you want to be sciencey about this, you want to be careful about this, we're going to have to continue to watch the data and see in eight months, in a year, in two years, are people who had the vaccine starting to develop uh, COVID illness again. Um, it is just hard to say until we have a large number of people who've had the vaccine and then waited, you know, eight months, 10 months, 12 months, 15 months to look at their, to look at their COVID rates. But it is, it is very, very likely that immunity will be quite long lasting. Okay. That's a great answer, but very practical answer too. And, uh, uh, I think, yeah, it just remains to be seen as to how everything plays out. Back in a moment with our guest on Fresh Leaf Forever. We constantly hear mRNA as far as these new vaccines. So what is it that that vial has and how is it that this gets administered to someone? Like as far as the uptake into the body, how does this go in or make us clean or whatever it is? <laughs> how does this work? Where did this mRNA thing come from? You know, the, the, the technology, although the vaccines are new, obviously, the, the technology has been worked on for a very long time uh, for the Moderna company. And by the way, the last few letters in Moderna are RNA, mm-hmm. if you've ever noticed that. Their, their whole company is dedicated to this technology of using uh, RNA uh, sequences mm-hmm. to, to for therapeutic benefit. And uh, some of their products have been used in cancer chemotherapy and things. But this is the first time it's been applied to a vaccine. So what mRNA is, what that stuff is... Uh, to explain that, we have to let's take a step backwards. What's DNA? Let's talk about DNA first. DNA is in all mammal cells. It's in almost all of your cells, and it's a, it's a it's little packets of information. Really, it's it's a very complicated, long molecule and little coiled up strands mm-hmm. that if you stretch them out, the the little protein pairs in there uh, are, are are a teaching template. What it is is a little recipe mm-hmm. for your body to make a protein. That's what your DNA does. And the DNA lives in the, in the nucleus of the cell. We have to think back to biology, right? So when your cells decide that they want to make some protein, they make a copy of one page of that recipe booklet. So the DNA has thousands, hundreds of thousands of recipes, but the mRNA is only one recipe for one protein. It's sort of a temporary copy of one page of the recipe book. And that temporary copy, that mRNA strand, is it leaves the nucleus of the cell, goes out into the body of the cell, mm-hmm. and then organelles called ribosomes and other things translate the mRNA to make protein. And then the mRNA just dissolves. It just goes away. It's a temporary copy. The permanent copy is kept in that recipe booklet in the library that's very well protected. That's in your nucleus. That's behind locked doors and it's guarded and, and nothing really changes that. But the, the, the mRNA is that sort of temporary copy. So the, um, the, the people who, who came up with this clever idea said, well, you know, to make a vaccine, we, we need to make proteins that your body will respond to, will recognize, mm-hmm. and will then make an immune response. But it turns out that making proteins is tricky. It is hard to do, even in a modern laboratory. Even if you know what the protein looks like, you can't just mix it up a bunch of chemicals to make a protein. They're very complicated molecules with all sorts of folds and all sorts of electric charges. 
And, you know, when you think about it, your cells are actually really good at making protein. They've already got the machinery. So the cleverness of the mRNA vaccines is that we can use your own cells, which are very good at making protein. They're good at it. They're, that's their job, right? Mm-hmm. If we can give them that temporarily, of course, that one page of instructions to make in this case, what's called the spike protein, the spike protein, which lives on the outside of the COVID virus, uh, then you can make spike proteins for just a day, just for a few hours, churn them out of your cells, and your immune system will learn to recognize those spike proteins and neutralize them. So if you're ever infected with the actual virus that makes its actual spike proteins, your immune system can fight it off before you ever get sick. And of course, the vaccine itself, it can't give you COVID. Because we're not giving yourselves the recipe to make the whole COVID virus. We're just giving it that one page, only the page for the spike protein. And and that other than causing an immune reaction with a little fever and aches like I experienced, it doesn't make you sick. Mm-hmm. Very clever. And in fact, going forward, if, for instance, now that, that variant that's around now, the B117 is not a big enough change in the spike protein probably to change the way the vaccine works. But let's say hypothetically in a year or two, there's a new mutant SARS-CoV-2 with a whole new spike protein that looks very, very different. Well, they can make a new mRNA strain. As soon as they can figure out how that protein, what the shape of it is and how it's made, you can back make it into a fresh mRNA strand, uh, put that in a, in a brand new vaccine. And we're talking about a process that may take weeks, just a few months, very, very rapidly, a whole new COVID vaccine to a new spike protein could be made or a new vaccine to a new uh, flu. If there's a new flu pandemic, let's say uh, some new bird flu that might strike next year. So now that we have the technology down, it's very, very exciting because mRNA uh, vaccines work. The concept works, they're safe, and they could be made very quickly to respond to some future threat or to a change in the current SARS-CoV-2 virus. Very cool stuff. Oh, that seems like a very, very encouraging scenario right there. So what exactly is in that vial, Dr. Roy? Ah, so what's in the vial? Well, we mentioned the mRNA. That's that one page of the recipe booklet. mRNA, though, is very fragile. It falls apart quickly. So the companies that made the vaccine have come up with what's called a lipid envelope. Mm -hmm. Lipids are fat-like molecules. So there's a little, little picture, a little droplet, a little droplet of oil a little droplet of, let's say, an essential oil, why not, uh, that surrounds and protects, bathes, nurtures the little mRNA strand. So the mRNA strand lives inside this little pocket, and then it's in a solution, a water-based solution that also contains a number of different salts, potassium salt, chloride salts, and things like that, that keep it all in suspension and keep it all safe and keep it all um, from clumping together. And that's it. That's what's in there. Water, some salts, the lipid envelope, and some mRNA strands. There are no preservatives. There are no cells. There are no tissues. There's uh, there's nothing else in there. It's actually a very simple, deceivingly simple, right? Little vial uh, to help give you a true immune boost. Now, by the way, we've been talking here about the licensed vaccines in the United States, the Pfizer and the Moderna products, but actually the J&J or Janssen product, the AstraZeneca product, those actually use different vaccine technology that is not based on mRNA. So mm-hmm. so when the new vaccines come out, we can have another conversation. I'll explain to you how those work. But but uh, what I've said so far about the magic of the mRNA vaccines, that's only for Pfizer and Moderna. Okay, fantastic. And so are any of these vaccines now ideal for uh, 
people under the age group of 18? Or when will that bridge happen for other age group kids? And how promising is the data? Well, when the vaccine trials were were put together, um, it was decided not to pursue vaccinating children. And I, I think that was okay because, in truth, the burden of disease is among adults. Adults are much more likely to develop COVID, more likely to develop complications, and much more likely to spread COVID, frankly. So the Pfizer company did a licensing study only enrolling children, uh, only enrolling adolescents down to 18. The Moderna study only enrolled adolescents down to 16. Mm-hmm. So the so the the way to use these vaccines reflects the way the licensing studies were done. That is the Moderna product down to 16 and the Pfizer product down to 18. I believe as we speak, Moderna is enrolling uh, children as young as I think 11 or 12, mm-hmm. I believe, in, in trials. Um, I don't actually know what Pfizer is doing, but I imagine that they're looking for pediatric trials as well. And uh, we're going to need that pediatric data. Uh, we're not going to be approving or encouraging or wanting children to get these vaccines until it's actually studied in children so we know that it's safe and, and we know it works. So for now, it's up to the adults. You know, we're used to taking our children to the pediatrician. Saying, it's time for you to get your shot. That's what parents say in my office, right? <laughs> but this time, it's our kids who should be pointing at us and saying, Mom, Dad, it's up to you. You adults need to go get this vaccine because that's how we're going to protect our children. And uh, it's time for us to roll up our sleeves. We've been counting on our kids to do this uh, for years and years and years. Now it's our turn. Okay. Uh, that's a good message again. So when it actually becomes available and when data looks promising, can immunocompromised children take it also? Well, we don't really know, to tell you the truth, what will happen with immunocompromised children. You know, the vaccines themselves are not live vaccines. They can't possibly give you COVID. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of safety. Even In adults right now with immune compromise, it's not unsafe for them to get the vaccine. The question, though, is that if their immune system is compromised, will the vaccine work? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. And it depends on how immune compromised, why they're immune compromised, how long they've been immune compromised. And that's a, a bigger question that I think we can get into right now. Um, fortunately, children and adults with immune compromise are not terribly common. I mean, they're out there, they're out there, but most of us have fully intact immune systems. So if we concentrate on vaccinating all of us with intact immune systems, that's the best way to protect the people with immune compromise, the people with, who are in cancer chemotherapy or had uh, spleen surgery or for some other reason have immune problems. The best way for us to protect them is for all of us to get vaccinated. Okay. Is... The spread more common from colleges right now. Uh, mm-hmm. I know you touched upon schools being not really a big source, but instead, yeah. you know, children are catching it from social gatherings. But do we know as yet, you know, how it is among yeah. college kids? Unfortunately, many colleges are are, are, are not doing a, a great job, um, especially larger schools. Um, we have had very, very large outbreaks mm-hmm. of COVID. So I believe some of the smaller schools, though, are, are, are trying and are, are doing a pretty good job. Um, but certainly there's quite a few schools have had very, very large outbreaks. And we know that those outbreaks have actually affected the communities in which the schools are. That is college towns, so to speak, towns that have large uh, undergraduate populations. If they have uh, in-person learning, if they're trying to have a 
let's just say, an ordinary college year, not only are there a lot of cases of COVID on campus, but in the community, you'll see 50 to 60% more COVID in towns with an active college campus. In contrast, colleges who've elected to go all virtual, the towns that they are in have actually seen a decrease in COVID rates. So the colleges are, are it's, it's one problem is that there's a lot of COVID, but another problem is that they're a source of COVID for the greater communities. You know, none of us live in a bubble. None of us can say, uh, we're just going to take care of ourselves mm-hmm. and the rest of you can just figure it out. You know, we're, we're, we're in this together and um, anything that's risky for individuals ends up being risky for a community as well. Oh, I'm sure. Um what about uh, the pneumonia shot? Is that or can that act like a stopgap arrangement until, uh, say, all children get vaccinated uh, with the COVID-19 vaccination? Well, children are routinely, starting in early in- infancy at two months, uh, vaccinated against bacterial infections that include pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the routine care and I hope that all children have access to those vaccines. And I hope that parents have continued to bring, especially their infants, into the pediatrician or into your family medicine physician for their routine vaccinations. Those should not be delayed. Those should not be deferred. Those should not be split up because, uh, you know, those diseases are certainly still out there and can be easily and safely prevented with vaccines. There's also a, a vaccine that's uh, referred to as a pneumonia vaccine that's offered to older adults, mm-hmm. uh, I, I believe starting at age 60 or age 65. I'm, I'm not an adult physician, so I'm not as up on that. Uh, but I, I think it is important for, for older Americans, older people all over the globe to continue to prevent pneumonia with those vaccines. However, those vaccines are, are really you know, frankly, unlikely to directly prevent COVID. It's just that by preventing cases of, of pneumonia, you can help keep emergency rooms less busy. Also, frankly, right now, adult facilities are so overwhelmed in many communities that even if you get a non-COVID illness, if you get pneumonia, it has nothing to do with COVID. Or if you have a stroke or if you have a heart attack or a kidney stone, good luck getting good care in an emergency department right now. They are tremendously overwhelmed. And uh, it's it's a tragedy, but it's true that people are not receiving routine care, even for things like, you know, cancer chemotherapy or cancer surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, many adults have had to delay that sort of care. And, you know, a delay in cancer care is, is, is going to shorten lives and is going to decrease quality of life. So again, we're, we're not living in individual bubbles. The decisions that we make to prevent COVID or to not bother to prevent COVID because we're sick of wearing masks or we're, we're tired of being hectored, those have a tremendous impact on a lot of people and maybe people that you know and maybe people that you love. Your neighbor who needs a stent because of their uh, because of their coronary artery disease, you know, they may not be able to get that stent. They have to wait three weeks, may die while waiting in the cath lab. I mean, this is what's happening right now. So that's why it's so crucial that even as we're trying our best to get these vaccines rolled out to protect everybody, uh, we have to continue to do the basic steps to keep this bottled up as best as possible. Oh, uh, thank you for saying that, because I was just going to ask you, what is your message to people, you know, like... Uh, who have sort of navigated three quarters of the way, uh, and we are kind of almost like in the home stretch, if you will, (laughs) hoping that we all can get vaccinated, you know, late spring or uh, early summer. And right there, I think you gave the answer. And what is your message to um, teenagers? They tend to go out, you know, they just, uh, some of them, you know, have part-time jobs. Uh, What precautions should 
those kids take and what about those that do e-cigarettes and you know so there's there's always vaping to uh, consider and their vulnerability to covid well teenagers as a species often think of themselves as superhuman. You know, teenagers don't like to think of themselves as, as, as vulnerable or as thinking themselves that they would ever be sick, right? Um, but but they, they can listen and they can learn. And many teenagers really do love their parents and their grandparents. So a message I will share with them is by protecting yourself, you're protecting your grandma. Mm-hmm. It's true. You know, no teenager wants to get their grandmommy sick. That's just, that's just true. Now it's interesting about, you mentioned vaping, which is a, this is a bad habit that had become very popular, especially in high schools and college campuses a few years ago. It's interesting, but there is some preliminary data that's, that's coming out right now that vaping uh, is becoming much less popular. And, and <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> uh, we're so focused on COVID that the teenagers are like, all right, fine. Uh, I don't, I don't need to vape anymore. Um, the, the rates of that have, have thankfully taken a decline that I hope is, is permanent. Uh, teenagers did get the message that vaping can be dangerous. Uh, there were uh, hundreds of cases of so-called vaping-associated lung injury, which can be very, very severe. And the teenagers did get the message. Uh, teenagers can get the message about the safety of, say, drunk driving or the safety of, 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 of driving while under the influence of cannabis. Um, they can be somewhat reckless. But they're not dumb and they're, they're not evil. And I think we have to continue to have expectations and to talk to them. Um, you know, you don't, you can't, we can't treat them like babies. We can't treat them the same way we treat five year olds, but we can have reasonable expectations and we can tell them, look, we need you to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. not part of the problem. I mean, we can all agree that we want the economy churning. We want restaurants open. We want kids in school. We want college campuses vibrant. We want concerts. We want theater. We want movie theaters. You know, I still haven't seen the new James Bond movie, which I think is a tragedy. Uh, <laughs> but the only way we're going to do that is if we act together and, and we do these little things right. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. I think the vaccines are going to really be hugely, uh, they're, they're just going to change everything once, once, uh, most adults have received those vaccines, but we have to get there. We have to kind of limp our way over there. And now is not the time to let up on things like masking and, and social distancing. Um, this winter will still be rough in the United States and in many other parts of the world. But spring is a time of renewal. The flowers <laughs> will be blooming. Mm-hmm. The, Birds and the bees will be doing whatever birds and bees do. And, <laughs> and uh, hopefully by then we can get widespread uptake of, of, of the vaccine. Um, there is some skepticism of the vaccine uh, among people who have been frightened. You know, we've been shut in a lot. We've been probably paying a little bit too much attention to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and these social media things. And uh, there is quite a bit of misinformation out there. But I will just concentrate on the positives. Uh, the vaccines work. They're safe. They're effective. Very, very soon, we're all going to notice that our friends who managed to get the vaccine, maybe healthcare workers we know or, or teachers or elderly people who got the vaccine, are going to be remaining safe. They're going to be healthy. Mm-hmm. They're going to come out of their shells. Wow. And then we're going to look at our sort of friends who are maybe a little more distrustful. You know, the ones who are, oh, I'm not getting that vaccine. Rah, rah, rah. Yeah, well, guess what? They're going to keep getting sick. They're going to keep getting other people sick. And I think uh, once that's clear, more and more people will say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to roll up my sleeve and I'm going to do the right thing. So hopefully those vaccines will be available to many, many people soon. Uh, I realize the rollout hasn't been entirely smooth or successful nationwide. And I, I hope that we can maybe do a little bit better. By the way, for those of you trying to get the vaccine, I, I would 
suggest, I would admonish you, please don't, don't blame your local county health department. They are really doing, they've been underfunded for years. They were expected to do all of the contact tracing. They were the, they were put right in the middle of this. And now they've got the huge job of helping with the logistics. Um, they are very hardworking. They're trying their best. Um, there's been a bit of a breakdown along the entire logistics chain, but don't direct your ire at the, uh, at the, at the people working at the local county health department. Honestly, they're doing great. I'm glad you emphasized on so many things there. Is there any influence of dietary supplements in combating COVID-19? And are these recommended for children? Because until such time they can get the vaccine, uh, are any of these going to be effective? I'll have to tell you, there's no great evidence that dietary supplements can help prevent COVID or help prevent complications of COVID. There is some indirect evidence that's kind of tantalizing, that's kind of suggestive, that's kind of suggestive. The the two dietary supplements that I think are perhaps worth thinking about, perhaps worth pursuing, uh, the, the best one, the one with the most evidence, actually vitamin D, not vitamin C, mm-hmm. vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin, uh, because we know, and this data has actually been available for, for years, that both in adults and in children who have uh, Deficient vitamin D levels tend to get more respiratory infections, especially in the wintertime. And routine supplementation of vitamin D among adults and children who are deficient will reduce your risk of respiratory infections by about 20%, which is pretty good. Now, 20% isn't great, I know, but it's good. It's good. 20% is pretty good. And vitamin D supplementation seems to be very, very safe. Now, there are no studies that I know of that have specifically observed this with COVID. Uh, we're talking here about other respiratory infections, but coronavirus, the, the, the cause of COVID is a respiratory infection. So uh, I think it, it, it is maybe logical that vitamin D could help. Um, although again, no direct evidence, but it's harmless may be worth it. It really may be worth it, especially in the winter when our children aren't spending much time outside and probably aren't making their own vitamin D from the sunshine. The other supplement that has some evidence, but I think it's not probably as as strong as vitamin D would be zinc, would be zinc. Uh, There is evidence, it's mostly in adults, that zinc taken early in the course of a common cold virus can make the symptoms shorter. Um, the dose that's required is is on the high end, and many people uh, have a hard time taking that much zinc. Um, the typical lozenge that's sold over the counter would, would have to be taken about every two hours while you're awake, which is a, a lot of zinc. Many people complain of nausea um, when they take the, that kind of a dose. Um, but, but, there, but there is some evidence. We're not sure exactly what the dose is other than the nausea. Uh, zinc supplementation is, is reasonably safe. I'm not so sure I'm ready to tell people that they just should take zinc every single day. The zinc studies I was talking about uh, aren't for continuous doking. They're, they're for they're for starting zinc on the onset of symptoms. Mm-hmm. So zinc is a daily preventive. Mm, not so sure there's enough data for me to suggest that. Uh, vitamin D, yeah, you know, there's at least some data with other respiratory infections, and it's safe. So hey, uh, I think that that's pretty reasonable. Uh, there's absolutely no data on other supplements, though. We're talking about vitamin C, no reason to think that would help. Elderberry, no reason. Anything else that you can find in those concoctions like Airborne are almost certainly a waste of your time and money. So uh, I, I wouldn't bother with those. 
And uh, just as a clarification, regular doses of vitamin D would suffice, correct? No need to ramp it up or anything. Right, right. So the typical, uh, what's actually recommended as a child supplement is 600 units a day. Uh, That's an awkward number because (laughs) it's not usually sold in that number. So I think it's reasonable for younger kids, say, uh, four and under to do 400 international units a day. Uh, There's little drops and things, very easy, or the gummies. Uh, Kids older than that, 1,000 units a day is very, very reasonable. Uh, you're right. Extra, extra vitamin D, high doses of vitamin D are unnecessary, very unlikely to help and might just make you sick. So let's stick with ordinary vitamin D dosing. Okay. Thank you. And what about sports and children, their sports practices and whatnot? How safe is it? Well, you know, you have to balance this to tell you the truth. There's how safe is it, but then there's how safe is not doing sports. I mean, we do need our kids to get outside for their mental health, for their physical health. It helps them sleep. It helps them do better in school. It works off stress. So sports, you know, I think if kids participate in sports, I have to admit it makes them more likely to be exposed to COVID, but not by much, but not by much. I mean, there have not been big outbreaks tied to uh, to to children doing sports or even high school sports. There have been some cases, individual cases, it's true, but there have not been big outbreaks. So, you know, I think when you weigh the, 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 the good of activity of getting outside of doing sports versus yes, you know, maybe there is a little bit more risk of the exposure. I think in most cases, you're going to come out um, wanting to encourage kids to do sports. Now, some sports, you know, let me just say offhand, wrestling, I, I'm not entirely sure you could do wrestling in a way that's entirely safe. I mean, mm-hmm. you're just rubbing all over each other. You're in each other's face. I just don't see wrestling as being particularly safe. But, you know, certainly softball, baseball, you know, you do get near each other, but then you just keep running. You know, that seems to be safe. And to my knowledge, there have not been outbreaks. Certainly track, swimming, lacrosse, basketball, all of these are safe. Um, and I think that we should encourage our kids, especially those who, you know, who miss their friends. They want to get out and do things. Now, interestingly, there have been, this is, this is something, there have been outbreaks on sports teams, but, but tied back to the social events. So let's say you have your soccer team. I actually think it's safe for them to be out there playing soccer, practicing soccer. But what's not safe is the traditional going out for pizza together after the game. Mm-hmm. I think that that probably needs to stop. And what's also not safe are a whole bunch of parents in the stands screaming and yelling. That's mm-hmm. not safe either. Parents just stay home, space yourself out. Now is not the time to be in the stands. Even though it's outside, when you're yelling, you're creating a ton of respiratory droplets and that's, that's not good for anybody. So that's, I think that's where the danger is. It's in the stands more than out on the field. Oh, that's such a great message. And one last question if you can just tell people who don't trust vaccines one final time, your thoughts, that'll be fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, gosh, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing and, and people read a lot of things and people aren't, people aren't stupid. People are just scared. I mean, you know, and, and, and you read so many things, but, but I, I will say that the, the scientists, the people who work on vaccines, the people who work on the CDC, the public health people, the pediatricians, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the ICU technicians, the people who really are the boots on the ground working with people, we want you, we desperately want you to be healthy. We do. I mean, it's, it's what I just my whole life really is, is, is trying to keep children healthy. And I will guarantee you that I would never suggest anything that I thought in any way 
could cause problems for your children or for yourself. And I'll, I'll guarantee you that almost all healthcare, and I know you'll find a couple of weirdos on the internet, but let's leave a car. Let's forget the weirdos. Let's talk about the 99% of healthcare people. Now, I know there might be some distrust of government. There might be some distrust of the, the so-called operation warp speed and the sort of political angle of the way this was rolled out. And I, I get that. I, I, I do. And I certainly get some fear of a needle kind of scary looking thing you know that video the images they show on the news right the needle is approaching the arm Ah, right okay i I get that i i don't mean to make light of that at all but the bottom line is that we, we we really want you to be healthy we want to love your children and the best way we can show that love, it is about love. It really is, is by making sure that, that your, your children are vaccinated. We do not want to harm your kids. I promise we are not in it for the money. Any pediatrician you meet, by the way, we could have been dermatologists. You realize that we could have been ophthalmologists. We could have been interventional radiologists. We could have been, we could have chosen another field and we would have made a lot more money because pediatricians are actually the lowest paid, but we don't mind it. We don't mind being the lowest paid. Because we love what we do and we love your kids. And, and, uh, one of the most powerful things you can do is confidently and with love, make sure that your children are fully vaccinated, including with this COVID vaccine. It's been well studied. It works. It's safe and it's going to change everything. Now, again, as I mentioned, it's not for your children anyway. I'm just talking in general, but <laughs> this, uh, this vaccine, it, the, the way you're going to show your children you love them isn't just getting your, isn't, isn't in this case getting your kids vaccinated. It's getting you vaccinated and your spouse, and your neighbors, and your parents, and the people you meet in the supermarket. And you should proudly show them that band-aid and say, yes, I got my COVID vaccine because I want to protect my whole neighborhood, my community, my children, everybody I know. That's how we're going to get the economy going. That's how we're going to get the kids back in school, back doing sports. That's how I'm going to eventually see that James Bond movie that I've been waiting for. You know, that Daniel Craig, he is the best Bond. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> the best way to do that is is what's going to end this. It's going to be the vaccine. And we can do this. Well. Thank you so much, Dr. Roy. You're just such a phenomenal physician. You know, you're a great pediatrician. You're wonderful with kids. I can attest to that. And I want the global audience to know that. And again, this is just an informational only episode, uh, just to put out the best message from the best resource that I could find on pediatrics. And, uh, you know, for individual case to case basis, people can uh, consult with their physician or their child's, you know, pediatrician. And thank you so much once again. It was such an honor and privilege for the entire global audience to have had the pleasure of hearing you on this show, Freshly Forever. Thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure, Vi. That was fun. Bye, everyone. Before I sign off, folks, let me remind you to keep that feedback coming. And the social media follow is at Freshly Forever on Instagram at Forever one on Twitter. Uh, be sure to follow and subscribe. I'll be back again with another interesting guest and an interesting topic next week. See you then. Bye.